May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A preacher is, is always delighted when they see a headline during the week that somehow could be relevant to the sermon that they're preaching on the Sunday. This is how I live my life. Okay, because the preacher knows that they can use the news story that everyone's aware of to make a link with the content of the passage that's being preached on. And it helps build that bridge from everyday life to the biblical context. And the forthcoming coronation of King Charles III is the gift that keeps on giving. My last two sermons have begun there, and you can see how this one uh, could do as well. Well, in the Bible passage we've just read, do keep that open at Luke chapter 19, Jesus himself was picking up on a story that would have been front page news in the times in which he walked the earth, and provided actually a very suitable link to what he was teaching people. There was a well-known ruler in Palestine around uh, that time by the name of Archelaus. Uh, Here he is. Uh, He was the son of Herod the Great and has sought such his hereditary claim to rule Judea. And to do that, he had to travel all the way to Rome to get that ratified by the Roman authorities. However, this guy, Archelaus, he was far from popular. There was a public outcry. He didn't actually quite receive the kingship he was hoping for, but a lesser title with the opportunity to prove himself should he be successful. And all of this was happening around this time. People would have been well aware. And you could imagine Jesus' listeners' interest being sparked by the similarities to these well-known events. But after the introduction that we read in verses 11 and 12, Jesus takes his story, his parable, in a very different and unexpected direction. For Jesus' parable was not about the would-be king of a region, but about the king of the world himself. And Jesus, again, is taking time to instruct his followers about the nature of life in his kingdom and his kingship. And if you remember, we saw on Palm Sunday and over recent weeks that Jesus is teaching people that his kingdom and his kingship is unexpected. And this parable adds another dimension to that because it's a parable that hinges on delay. Jesus is the one who will be appointed king, but he has a long journey to undertake before he comes back to reign as king. Only when he returns will every knee bow to this king. And in the meantime... He leaves those who count themselves as his servants responsibilities to fulfill. The parable he tells describes this in verse 13. Have a look at verse 13. So, Jesus, so he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. In the parable, the man of noble birth is gone. And in that time, his interests need to be administered. His servants are tasked to see what they can do with the resources that their master has given them until he returns. And the king is away, in this story is away long enough for people to reveal their true attitude towards him. 
And the parable shows that people divide themselves into three broad categories, rebels, wicked servants, and trustworthy servants. Firstly, rebels. As was the case with Archelaus, this man in the parable faces opposition from some. They don't want his kingship over them, verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. But nothing can stop the crowning and the return of the king. And you'll have seen that the parable concludes with a stark description and a sober warning of how there's no room in the kingdom for those who rebel against the king. But as well as those rebellious subjects who hate the king, there are servants who were given the money to put to work until he returns. And as the king does return eventually and sends for the servants, verse 15, he finds out what these servants have gained with it. And we meet one more example in verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Well, it's clear that this servant didn't put to work what he had been given. This servant hadn't done anything with the resources and the opportunities that he'd been given. But the crucial question is why? Why? Why do you think this servant acted in this way? Why did he keep his mina laid away in a piece of cloth? Why? It's because he had a completely wrong view of the character of his master. He had a completely wrong view of the character of his king. He sees his master as a hard, unjust taskmaster. He sees him as some kind of vicious exploiter. He says, verse 21, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. But that view flies in the face of all the evidence. His master is actually a benefactor committing some wealth to the servants, giving them responsibility and rewarding them in due course. Can you see the point that Jesus is bringing out here? If we're finding ourselves lacking in desire to invest, to use, to put to work anything we've been given for his kingdom, is it because we have a wrong view of the character of King Jesus. If we are finding ourselves lacking in generosity, is it because we don't have a right view of King Jesus' generosity to us? I know that when I am lacking in grace towards other people, it's because I have forgotten how much grace and mercy King Jesus has shown to me. And when I am lacking in patience with people, it's because I have lost sight of how patient King Jesus is with me. 
Brothers and sisters, the, the consequences of having an inaccurate view of the character of our king can't be underestimated. And like the wicked servant, if we have a view of Jesus' character that is wrong, then we'll never invest or put to work or use the, the good gifts that God has given us. But this wasn't the only type of servant that the king found upon his return. There were other servants who had acted as good stewards of all that their master had given them. They had invested their gifts well. You see, they had understood and reflected the character of their king. They showed love and loyalty to their master in the long time that he was away. They were showing faithful, steady service when he came back. They reflected his character. Verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Do you see how the good servants who, who put to work what the master had given them, who had been trustworthy, they were commended, and actually they were, were given more responsibilities as a result. So do you see what happens as we have a growing understanding, a growing appreciation of who King Jesus is, of what he's like, and it's knowing the character of King Jesus that transforms us. It's knowing the character of King Jesus and what he's like that then frees us to live like him and for him. And that's why we, when we come together on Sundays, we're not merely aiming to give ourselves a list of things to do. No. Rather, when we come together like this, we're wanting to get to know the character of our king better. Because only doing that will truly free us to live our lives for him, to reflect him in the world, to bear his image to a watching world. As we meet together, it dawns on us afresh that that Jesus is the king who gave us his all. That Jesus is the servant king, the generous king, the crucified king, the risen king, the reigning king, the king who will return, the king whom we are to reflect to the world. And all of history is heading in one direction, to the point where the king, King Jesus, returns to this world. And in that time, we're to make the most of the opportunities, the resources that, that he has given us by investing them for his kingdom. So if you're here today and you count yourself as a follower of King Jesus, and this is what he asks, this is what he asks of you, put this to work until I come back. Now, the question is, of course, what, what are 
our minas? What does, what does the money represent in the parable for us? Well, if we look in Matthew's gospel, we'd find that, that Jesus told a similar but distinct parable in chapter 25. And I think when we take the two parables together, we can see our minas quite expansively as being all of the different resources, gifts, abilities, and so on that, that the Lord has given us to use. Whatever the Lord has given us, we're to put it to work for his kingdom until he returns. It could be our time. It could be our money, our energy, our gifts, our talents, our words, our careers, our retirement, our possessions, and the list goes on. And next Sunday, God willing, I'll be speaking about how we can identify some of the particular gifts and, the, and abilities that the Lord has, has given us. But the, the real point is that, that we are to be stewards of what he has given us. That we see ourselves as stewards of gifts that he has given us, not owners of possessions that we have earned. I'm going to say that again because the whole of our culture preaches to us all of the time that it is the other way around. But King Jesus frees us to see ourselves as stewards of gifts he has given us. And that is so freeing. Rather than being owners of possessions we have earned. So we put to work whatever he gives us for his kingdom. The story is told of two little boys who were, these two little lads were, were trying to show their unbreakable friendship to one another. And the first little boy said to the other, hey, Bobby, if you had a million pounds, would you give me half? Well, Bobby replied, of course I would. Well, what about if you had a thousand pounds? Ah, I'd give you half just the same. What if you had a thousand marbles? Yeah, I'd, I'd, give, you, I'd give you half of them. What about if you had two marbles? And there was a pause. And the reply came, that's not fair. You know that I've got two marbles. Well, God is not interested in our hypothetical devotion. What we'd give him if only we had it. And if you're anything like me, then you might daydream of how generous you, you would be with your time if you had more of it. Or if you, if you came into lots of money, how much of it you'd be able to give to kingdom ministry? Or how much hospitality you'd be able to do if only you had a bigger house or, or whatever? And we might start to get a bit envious of, of, of other people. Or if I had their personality, or if I had their talents, or if I had their income, or if I had their marriage partner, then, then I'd really be able to serve God. I think we all find ourselves, if we're honest, thinking along those kind of lines in one way or another. 
So I think we all need to hear today that God has given us our Mina. God has given you your Mina. It's not a question of what we don't have. It's a, a question of whether we'll, of what we'll do with what we do have. It's a, faith, a question of faithfulness, not giftedness. You may not have a thousand marbles, but with those that you do have, what will you do with them? Will you put them to work until King Jesus returns? And like good servants, those that faithfully fulfill their commission will be, will be commended in eternity. And there's also a sense in which I think in this life, those who are faithful in the small things are given greater responsibilities. Do you see that at verse 17? Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear that encouragement. That the Lord sees the small matters of life. Not just the big things that lots of people might see. The Lord sees your faithfulness in the small things in life. Well done. Well, there are some implications for us as individuals, but, but what about us together as a church? Well, I want to share this morning something of, of what, we, what we sense the meaners are that we believe in that sense that the Lord has given us as a church and what he's inviting us to do with them. So if at this point I could ask you to pick up uh, this leaflet, which uh, Ollie has very kindly designed for us. And I want to share really this morning, just some, this is just some snapshots. It's not everything, some snapshots of what we sense the Lord has given us and what he's inviting us to be part of in the coming years. Please do Take this away and, and read it prayerfully and ask the Lord how he'd like you to respond. Firstly, in, in, in gathering, as we gather for worship on a Sunday, we're, we're, we're being equipped and fueled for our, our, our worship throughout the week in whatever we're doing, Monday through to Saturday, in our homes, our communities, our, our jobs, our sports teams, our clubs, and so on and so on. And we are, as we gather, we're very much learning to be the intercultural and inter-ethnic and intergenerational church that the Lord is gathering here at Cornerstone. And we're learning how to be that. And you'll see we're continuing to explore opportunities to, to plant churches and revitalize churches in Nottingham. So that's gathering. And when it comes to, to giving, in the giving section, you'll see a couple of QR codes, those will lead you to just two of the many ways that we can reflect the generosity of our God. One will enable you to respond in giving your time and talents on a serving team or in a ministry, joining the, the hundreds of volunteers across the ministries of the church. And the other will enable you to respond by giving financially. And especially in these economically challenging times, we're so thankful for the way that the Lord has provided through his people. Over £800,000 was given uh, last year to the mission and ministries of the church, over £160,000 towards the mortgage on this building, 
and over £40,000 to the Christmas appeal. And I want to say that to, to do all that we believe the Lord is inviting us to do, to be part of in ministry and mission, we're praying for, um, for giving to, in financial giving to increase by around £15,000 per month. And I'm going to be honest and say that is, that is a step of faith. Could you, could you be part of the, the answer to those prayers? If you give already, some, some may be in a position to increase their giving. Some, some won't be in that position. And if you don't yet give, maybe you could seek the Lord as to whether he's calling you to begin to give. And for any of us who are UK taxpayers, uh, you can also give, uh, uh, fill in a gift aid declaration too, which is very helpful. And one, uh, one major part, if you want to turn over to the final page, one major part of what we believe we're being invited to be part of is raising new generations of leaders. We want to very significantly invest in the ministry development scheme. We'll be pro proposing Ailey as the next person on the MDS at the AGM this coming week. David, who led this service this morning, he's already on it. And we hope to train at least six to eight people by the end of the decade. And our sense is that, that this is our next building project. A building project not of bricks and mortar to house God's people, but of men and women to serve God's people. Here at Cornerstone and elsewhere, to be sent elsewhere in the future. And you know, I would love to see um, future editions of this leaflet filled with a diversity of faces of those that we're training. I would love to see that. And to do, to do all of the, the training and the sending that we want to do will cost uh, around about a million pounds. And you can choose to support the MDS specifically if, that, if, if you sense that's what the Lord is laying on your heart. And then when it comes to going, well, why did we start with verse 10 and not verse 11 where the paragraph break is in the Bible? It's because we need to hear this parable in light of the reason Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And as well as church plants and revitalizations, we want to equip us all in the opportunities and challenges our contemporary culture presents, sharing hope in a disappointed world, sending more people to serve cross-culturally, as we've seen this morning. Well, that's just some snapshots of our invitation to be part of all God is doing. And there are many things that are not mentioned that that we want to sustain as well as God gathers and grows and gives and calls us to go. But these are the, the, the mean, a reflection of the meaners that we believe God has given us as a church. Born in the back streets of Nottingham in 1888, Raleigh grew to be the biggest bicycle manufacturer in the world. Yet it all started with one man. His name was Frank Bowden. 
He was originally from Devon. He spent some years working in Hong Kong and then San Francisco, starting to build a fortune before returning to the UK in 1887. He actually then suffered a debilitating illness. And in fact, he was given just six months to live at one point. However, a doctor told him to take up cycling to improve his fitness and health. And so Bowden began cycling and it found that it transformed it, he found that it transformed his life. It restored him to health. And it had such an impact upon him that he wanted others to receive the benefits that he'd had. Cycling had transformed his life and he wanted the world to share that. But how could he do it? Well, he bought a business that was in a courtyard in a back street of Nottingham, making just three bikes per week at that point. And in time, as he innovated and developed the business, production moved to a five-acre site in Lenton, where Raleigh Park uh, now is. And his son, Harold, who uh, I think it's, uh, oh no, it's Frank that's pictured. His son, Harold, expanded the business in the 1930s, and in the coming decades, bikes for children were a new development for the company. So from humble beginnings, Bowden set the wheels in motion for one of Nottingham's most famous exports, creating something that's known all over the world. His vision provided for many Nottingham families and the households too. And the next generation was raised cycling in no small part because of what he began. We could almost say that he had ambition for Nottingham, all nations, and the next generation. I told you this is how I live my life. <laughs> but how did it all start? Because he had experienced something that had changed his life, in this instance, cycling. Of course, not all of us are keen cyclists. But if you are a Christian here today, then we have experienced something that has changed our life. In fact, not as something, but as someone. Jesus Christ. And the transformation that we have experienced in Christ, gives us an ambition humbly to grow his kingdom in Nottingham, all nations, and the next generation. Now, you might have expected that the rally name was a fam the family name of its founder, and I was surprised and intrigued to find out that's not the case. Where did the name rally come from? Well, it was taken from the street that that original small workshop was on, Raleigh Street. And our church first had the name Cornerstone, not when we moved in here, or even when we were at the school that we used to meet in. It was a building before that, when Cornerstone met in the Canning Circus area of the city. And so Cornerstone Church, in that sense, began on which street? Raleigh Street. And from there, the good news of Jesus has spread across Nottingham, the nations, and the next generation. And God now invites us to be part of all that he is doing. Now and in the years ahead. Let's bow our heads as we pray.
Lord God, we praise you that you are gathering a people from all tribes, tongues, and nations to yourself. And we gather today one in Christ Jesus. By your spirit, grow us in love for you, for each other and a lost world. And send us out to go and make more followers of Jesus until he returns and makes all things new. Amen.